Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Star Trek Wines. Visit StarTrekWines.com today for limited edition Chateau Picard, Ryzen Varietals, and many more. Use our special code Roddenberry at StarTrekWines.com for an exclusive United Federation of Planets medallion. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 480, The Swarm. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we examine an episode of Star Trek, examining it for the morals, meanings, and messages, and asking if the whole thing stands up to the test of time. This week, The Swarm, the one where the Doctor is losing his mind as Voyager is swarmed by a swarm of aliens who travel in a... Uh, you know, what's what's that thing where there's a lot of them and they all move together? Oh, you mean a swarm? Sure. Yeah, we can go with that. Okay. Let's do that. I'll tell you what. I'll let people know how to reach us while you get prepped for your swarm of trivia. Mm, like that. Okay. So, Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at missionlogpod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember, your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Rod and Bear YouTube channel. And now, here is John Champion with this week's trivia. All right, trivia for this week's episode, The Swarm. It was written by Mike Sussman. And yes, we met Mike not that long ago with his story for the Voyager episode of Meld. He was still freelancing at this point, coming off of his internship with the series. Of course, we mentioned Mike's longtime Star Trek fandom, going back to childhood, and we will see a lot more of his work as we go through Voyager and on to Enterprise. Uncredited here, it was Jerry Taylor who shaped most of the plotline about the swarming aliens into place. Her contribution in that respect was really to punch up the action intention of those scenes. It was directed by Alexander Singer. Always good to see this returning director in the chair. We most recently covered Resolutions, which was his episode. And it was only a few months before that Alexander was wrapping up his time over at DS9. Uh, His final episode on that show was Hard Time. And we've got six more Voyager episodes with Alexander at the helm. Every now and then we hear about actors who also contribute to the show, and in this case it was Robert Picardo who influenced a couple of elements that we see here. He had suggested more than a year prior that perhaps the EMH could take an interest in opera. Nothing came of it, and then Jerry Taylor asked him what his range was, and yes, that is Bob's voice in the musical scenes. 
And more specifically, Bob had also suggested that there be an episode in which the EMH could interact with Dr. Zimmerman on the holodeck, and that's what we have here. Now, we haven't mentioned friend of the show Rick Sternbach in a long time, but it is his design that comprised the ships in this alien swarm. This also became the first episode for Foundation Imaging to do the CG work on Voyager, and that is your Babylon 5 tie-in. You're welcome, Norman. Let's meet our guest stars, the opera diva Giuseppina Pentaginelli. Yeah, I, I didn't get that right. Is played by Carol Davis, much easier to say, born in London to American and French parents. Carol got a start in the early 80s with some low-budget movies before jumping over to TV guest roles like The A-Team. And you may remember her in a role in the 1987 movie Mannequin. She would later work with that movie's star and Trek alumnus Kim Cattrall in Sex in the City. Carol can most recently be seen in the series Madam Secretary and in Hacks. This is her only Star Trek appearance. We meet a badly hurt pilot, Chartis, played by Stephen Hauska. Steve's credits start in the late 80s, and you may have caught him in a couple of episodes of the HBO cult favorite Dream On. More recently, he shows up in some soap opera appearances and a handful of short films and some TV series like Apocalypse Goals. This is his only Star Trek appearance. And... Oh, yeah, in the dual role of the EMH and Dr. Lewis Zimmerman is our old friend Bob Picardo. This is still definitely not his last Star Trek appearance. Welcome to Starfleet. Dancing Doctors? Check. Singing Doctors? Also check. Prologue. Tom and Bellana are out and about in a shuttlecraft investigating intermittent sensor readings which appear to be, well, intermittent. Tom notices that Bellana's a bit impatient to get back to Voyager and asks her about a certain Ensign Freddy Bristow, who, by Bellana's admission, may have a little bit of a crush on her. Never one to be outdone in the flirting department, Tom offers Bellana a relaxing getaway, a la sailing in his Lake Como holodeck program. However, before any further awkwardness ensues, in a brilliant flash of light, two alien beings appear inside the shuttle. And before Tom can finish his peaceful greeting, both he and Bellana are fired upon and rendered unconscious. Act 1. On Voyager, the Doctor has his hands full. Of a scarf, that is, which he flings across his neck before launching into his rendition of O Suave Fanchula from the Earth opera La Boheme by Puccini until he pauses the entire affair, blaming his soprano for poor tempo, his partner being the hollow recreation of Giuseppina Pantangeli, the greatest soprano of the 22nd century, who in return is just as infuriated with the doctor's inability to emotionally connect with the music, comparing singing with him to singing with a computer. Ironic. However, after losing his place in their performance, the doctor can't seem to remember the lyrics. Just then, Janeway contacts the doctor and orders him to sickbay due to a medical emergency. And before he departs, the doctor does remember these words. Computer, delete the diva. In sickbay, the doctor treats both Tom and Bellana for trauma from the alien's neuroelectric shock weapons. Tom remains unconscious, but Bellana comes to and describes what happened on the shuttle. 
As Janeway and Tuvok leave and discuss how to find and identify these alien assailants, the Doctor appears to be slightly befuddled with why Bellana is still sitting there and why aren't his medical instruments where they ought to be. Later in the briefing room, Neelix informs the command staff that the aliens who attacked Tom and Bellana are both a mystery and hostile to those who enter their space. However, Janeway can't afford the proposed 15 months it would take to reroute their course, so she orders her crew to find the fastest route through said enemy territory, upon which Tuvok reminds her that this decision is in violation of the regulations. However, Janeway doesn't abide bullies. And before she dismisses her staff, the EMH reports that Tom will need to undergo a procedure which will repair some of the neurological damage he is still suffering from the alien's weapons. In sickbay, the doctor continues to sing more of O Suave Fanchula while cleaning his hands and preparing for surgery. Kess is pleasantly surprised by his newfound passion for music. However, things turn dire on the operating table as the doctor no longer remembers how to perform this supposedly uncomplicated procedure. Act 2. In the midst of the operation, the doctor first leans on Kess for help, but his increasing memory loss is so rapid that Kess has to literally take over as lead surgeon in the procedure in order to ensure that Tom survives the operation, which he does, and for which Kess still gives the doctor all the credit. Later in sickbay, Bellana informs Captain Janeway, Kess, and most importantly the doctor, that his memory circuits are deteriorating due to the doctor's constant uptime as a program. And even though Bellana installed safety buffers to prevent the degradation of the doctor's memory circuits, it appears that it was only a matter of time before they failed. The doctor admits that in order to prevent a full cascade overload, he must reinitialize his program. His data will be saved, but at the cost of losing all the memories and experiences that have allowed him to evolve over the last two years. The doctor believes this is the best way to serve the needs of the many, by which his standards outweigh the needs of the one. However, Kess pleads that if there were a way to save the doctor, then that's where Bellana should focus her talents to find this cure. Janeway believes that this is what they owe him because he would do no less than the same for any member of her crew. Back on the bridge and under the ever-watchful and scrutinizing eye of Tuvok, Chakotay and Harry reveal their tactical plan to get them safely and quickly across enemy space, which Janeway immediately approves. In sickbay, Bellana is hard at work trying to further diagnose the doctor's current state of degradation. However, knowing that she may need another pair of eyes, or a second opinion on this matter, she heads to the holodeck and runs Jupiter Station Program Alpha-1-1. Upon entering the program, both she and the EMH come face-to-face with a hologram of the man who created the doctor in the first place and the one who looks exactly like him. Act 3. The hologram who Bellana and the Doctor encounter in the Jupiter Station recreation is none other than Dr. Lewis Zimmerman, who is more akin to how the EMH used to behave. Zimmerman, as the EMH's diagnostic tool, discovers that the holographic Doctor is suffering a level 4 memory fragmentation due to the constant uptime that the EMH's program has been online. Zimmerman reminds both Bellana and the Doctor that the EMH was only supposed to be used as a supplemental program to Voyager's full-time medical staff with a maximum use-up time of 1,500 hours, and not the two years that has now been proven as the cause of the EMH's memory degradation and fragmentation. Zimmerman believes that reinitialization is the only solution, 
Unless Voyager can return to McKinley Station for maintenance and a memory upgrade to the EMH's systems. Velana informs Zimmerman of Voyager's situation of being so far away from Federation space that his suggestions are impossible, to which Zimmerman admits that there is nothing more he can do for the EMH. In the midst of trying to work with Zimmerman and finding a cure for the EMH, Balana is then ordered to engineering to prepare for Voyager's push through enemy territory. On the bridge, Janeway prepares her team to execute their plan to silently and swiftly move through this new enemy's territory. With Harry's stealth shielding online, Voyager threads the proverbial needle at warp 9.75, and according to Chakotay, would take 12 hours at this speed just to finish one-third of the overall trip. But shortly after engaging warp, Tom notices a drag on the engines and a reduction in speed, and even though they have not been detected by the swarm of alien ships that they slipped past, Voyager's sensors detect a nearby vessel, which Janeway chooses to investigate, and to have its one faint life sign of a crew member beamed directly to sickbay. Meanwhile, back in the Jupiter Station program on the holodeck, Dr. Zimmerman continues his diagnostic as Kess arrives to check up on her friend. She explains to Zimmerman that her doctor, the EMH, is so much more than his original program, so much more than a complex set of algorithms. However, the EMH's mental degradation is now so severe that he doesn't even recognize her. Act 4 In Sekbei, Kess is now in charge of the alien patient's care and has diagnosed it suffering from severe dehydration, spinal injuries, and the same nervous system trauma that Tom and Bellana suffered at the hands of the hostile alien's weapons. As he comes to, the alien tells Janeway that he is from Mislin, five parsecs from their current location, and that a swarm of smaller ships attached themselves to his vessel and drained it of energy, boarding it and attacking his people. Janeway asks why his ship was attacked, and all he can say for certain is just because they entered this hostile alien's territory. Before he died, the Mislin alien asked Janeway to find his people to let them know what had happened. Kess tells Janeway that the doctor's mental degradation is so severe that reinitializing him may be the only way to save him, but Janeway can't spare Balana at this time because her attention needs to be focused on making sure that Voyager can escape hostile space as quickly as possible. Janeway encourages Kess to keep the doctor engaged to challenge his memories and try and keep the degradation from accelerating. Which Kess does, but to the point where every question that she asks the doctor is only met with more irritability and annoyance, leading to a very tense moment where he yells at Kess, demanding her to call him by his name and causing his program to flicker in and out of existence. As Voyager is about to resume course, a smaller ship detaches from the larger Mislin vessel. It is one of the Swarm, which hails Voyager in a language that the Universal Translator struggles with, but does let Harry piece together what the aliens are saying, to the tune of, Too late. Should have listened. And with that, the Swarm ship tags Voyager with a high-energy Polaron burst, which, according to Harry, changed their shield polarity in a way where Chakotay describes Voyager as being lit up like a Christmas tree, which allows the Swarm to see Voyager and continues their pursuit. Act 5. The alien swarm ships have gained on Voyager and are in weapons range, but much to the surprise of Tuvok and his sensors, the swarm has not powered their weapons in any way. Janeway, however, makes sure that Voyager is ready and orders all phaser banks to be armed. 
Suddenly, Kest bursts onto the bridge and tells Janeway the doctor is starting to dematerialize, but Janeway, as much as she wants to help the doctor, needs Bellana at her post in engineering and can't spare Harry either to attend to the doctor's pressing needs at this time. After leaving the bridge, Kest heads for the holodeck because she has only one option left, Zimmerman, and more specifically, Zimmerman's Hollow Matrix. After explaining to him that Zimmerman, like the Doctor, has the capacity to exceed his own base program, Zimmerman is not only encouraged, but believes that Kess may have just discovered that grafting the EMH's holomatrix onto his may be the only way to save the Doctor's program. But there is no guarantee, and both programs could be lost in the process. Zimmerman proceeds and takes his and the EMH's matrices offline, informing Kess that when she next activates the EMH... It is the only time when she will know if this plan actually worked. Meanwhile, the Swarm Cloud has reached Voyager, and the individual ships have nullified her shields and have started attaching themselves to her hull, allowing for boarding parties to materialize on the bridge, despite the crew being able to fend off these would-be attackers. During this time, Harry has discovered that these aliens and their ships coordinate their efforts through an integrated lattice of energy pulses. Janeway orders Harry to destroy one ship, and when it explodes, the same integrated system causes a feedback pulse throughout the aliens' swarm-wide network, and thus destroying all the ships attached to Voyager's hull in the process. The threat is over for now. Back in sickbay, both Balana and Kess patiently await the procedure to complete its integration, and once it does, Kess anxiously activates the EMH. He materializes and appears to be stable but also acts in accordance to the same curt and brusque manner as the EMH of the past. They are both happy to see him, but feel that they may have lost who he was in the process, until they hear him start to hum a few bars of O Suave Fanciola. The end. All right. Thank you for that, Norman. Quite a plot-dense episode. Um, Just a little. (laughs) Just a little bit. I got to ask you, look, I don't know if this is going to come up again. I haven't looked ahead at the notes because that is our policy here. We we open with a personal conversation going on at the top of the show. Uh, How do we feel about this? Is this just designed to tease the audience about a romance between Tom and Balana? I mean, do do we need to? Because we, I feel like we just came off of the tease of resolutions, and now Mm -hmm. it's like, okay, well, we left that in the dust, so now we just have to start something up again. You know, have you noticed that in the last few episodes, most of these relationship building constructs have started at the well, quote unquote, at the start of a of a shuttlecraft expedition or some kind mm-hmm. of mission. Yeah. So you had, well, let's go all the way back to resolutions. You had Jane and Chakotay and they yep. were strapped, you know, they were tra- stranded on the planet. Yeah. Uh, then you had uh, Tuvok and Neelix with Tuvix. Yeah. Let's see. And you have this episode with, you know, Tom and Balana. Yeah. It's Maybe, always when, when you get people separated, you know, yeah. that's, you know, that's what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Things are going to happen. All right. Well, maybe uh, maybe we'll see where that goes. I have to say that the aliens who show up and uh, just start shooting, they are genuinely weird and intimidating, uh, particularly that, you know, they didn't – we couldn't see their eyes, couldn't see their faces, couldn't understand them. That was kind of a weird bit. And I, I also – as soon as we cut back to the holodeck, nice to hear the EMH 
singing a bit of opera, and it was a funny scene. But again, I'm going to bring this up because it may be relevant to discussion down the road here in the episode. It is the computer talking to the computer. <laughs> okay. So, so yeah. it's a it's a hollow character talking to another hollow character and being critical of that hollow character. Both of them criticizing mm. each other, one for being a diva, the other one for being late on his cues. <laughs> yeah, so. that, there's a little strangeness there. I have a, I have a comment about that for sure. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. I, I do think that she is wonderful. I'm not going to, to attempt the character name, the Italian name, but Carol <laughs> is fantastic. And uh, I love how they kind of, they do this little tease at first about whether or not she is a real person. I mean, because he just stops the playback. But she's there, and then they start having this conversation as a couple of performers to each other. And it's then that is revealed that she is, you know, a, an opera singer from the 22nd century. So we have to wait to see if uh, if she is a real person. <laughs> but but I thought that was very cool. I thought all of that was played very nicely. I like it when I have to look up words because I don't know what the words are. In this case, you know, mm. there are Italian words that are being used. So the um, the soprano says, you know, you're an amateur. You have no uh, sense of rubato, no rarentando. It's like singing with a computer, which I thought yeah. was kind of funny. <laughs> right. <laughs> so and, and maybe this word, like, uh, applies to the doctor or the doctor is at this time. So rubato, right? Mm. Rubato. You have no sense of rubato. Mm-hmm. It's Italian from rubare, meaning to rob. Hmm. And in music, it is the subtle rhythmic manipulation and nuance in performance. For greater musical expression, the performer may stretch certain beats, measures or phrases, and compact others. So that's uh, uh, rubato, to be able to just understand when to manipulate the tempo in order to create maybe a better sense of an emotional connection with the music. Interesting. But as a computer... A computer can only do so maybe at the the specificity of a um, you know of just computer mechanisms, mechanics, or a, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, what do you call those things that go back and forth? Like um, a metronome. Like a metronome, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. That's it. No yeah. soul, but keeps perfect time. Yeah. Right? It's very so, cool. All right. Well, that, that was a, a nice thing to put in there. And I love, uh, finally, the return of the rule of threes on Star Trek. So Caruso, Pavarotti, and then some Vulcans. <laughs> you got okay. to work that in. Yes. All right. So it's kind of like that inside joke when, say, you know, in, in Star Trek Six, you know, when Gorkhan says uh, – or no, with Chang says, you know, have to listen to like um, like Shakespeare and its original Klingon. We know yeah. it's not original, right? Yeah, no, it's yeah, not yeah. Klingon. Yeah. But the doctor says here that Sorol and Tepena of Vulcan, like mm-hmm. the greatest duets of whoever performed Oswabi Fanchula, you know that music has a lot to do with emotion, right? Yeah, of course. How do like Vulcans access that kind of emotion to sing that kind of a piece in order to like do the piece the justice emotionally that it deserves? I mean, look, I I think it's one of two things. Either they can tap into those boiling, seething emotions that are just under the surface that they repress. So maybe that's their one way to get them out. Or or Vulcans are so determined to be better at anything than anybody else that they will just study it until they have replicated it perfectly. True. So that right. that's I think those are two possible answers for you there. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, great line of the episode, delete the diva. I mean, <laughs> wonderful line. Yeah. So good. 
And uh, we cut back to the bridge. Uh, kind of nice to see a language that the translator can't just immediately handle. Right. Uh, I, I do like that. Like it, it does actually build some drama and some tension. Oh, by the way, that, that was in the uh, that was in the ready room not, or the uh, conference room, not on the bridge, because in there, Tuvok says to Janeway <laughs> something about how encroaching on the territory of an alien species is prohibited by Starfleet regulations. That's literally all they do all the time <laughs> is encroach on something. Tuvok, you maybe you need a different job. Yeah, I, I, I have a follow up to that. You know, in, okay. in that same scene, I know this is weird, and I know this is a nitpick, but we mm-hmm. we did this to Cisco back in Deep Space Nine when they got their yeah. uniforms. But Neelix's yeah. communicator pin in this scene. It's yeah. like on his shoulder. <laughs> this is why like, I just, just choke up on that a bit. It's, yeah. it's a weird placement for like, you know, because they obviously have been, you know, they've been costuming him for like a few years now. Yeah, and all of a sudden yeah, it's like yeah. it's just moving. It's like like the moving mole, like in Austin Powers 2. You know, right. like, you know, all, <laughs> all of a right. sudden this badge is like everywhere. Um, yeah. So Tuvok also says, you know, to your point earlier, yeah. if we are not to go around their space, the only available option is to go through it. Wow! Really? That's wow. that is so obvious. I'm surprised Some that you're not captain by now, Tuvok. Deep, deep insights from Tuvok on yeah. that one. And Janeway gave him a couple of looks. You know, she did. Also, in this episode, the return of pre-ganglionic fibers, paging Doctor mm. Bashir, paging Doctor Julian Bashir. That darn post-ganglionic nerve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The okay. So the medical scrubber. It's a great idea. Yeah. I thought it was super neat. Um, I don't think we've seen that before, at least in Voyager. You're right. So here's my question. What happens to the germs when the doctor dematerializes, turns off? Do they just kind of float around sickbay? Whoa. Right? Also, That's a good question. Yeah. So I worked in, uh, in the medical field for many years. And mm-hmm. when you scrub, you touch mm-hmm. nothing after right. you scrub. Right. But the doctor starts touching all types of stuff. He's like, you know, I'm going to touch this. I'm going to touch like, you know, the, the medical bed. I'm going to do like none of those things look sterilized. I'm like, yeah, it's just a weird thing. Oh, yeah. funny. Uh, you know, we uh, we like to talk about uh, we like to talk about Tuvok's uh, uh, maybe expressions. Uh, mm-hmm. Every now and then, like uh, it, he might be in a tent scene with Neelix or something. At seventeen thirty-three in the episode, I love this. Vulcans—they don't need emotions when they are serving up a stare down like that. Oh yeah, like he. Oh yeah, that was intense. It's almost almost as intense as the Tuvok finger. <laughs> yeah, that is pretty uh-huh. intense. Oh yeah. yeah, and it's funny too because like the camera captures that in that way where. Tuvok's like, okay, I see what you're doing. I don't approve. I'm going to start making my own plans at the same time because something's going to go down and you're going to be thankful that I'm ready for it. Right? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Weird. Yep. Yeah. Uh, another great line in the episode, Dr. Zimmerman saying that uh, the EMH should have the intellectual capacity of a parsnip. <laughs> Just good line. Just a good choice of words. Yep. So I don't know how you felt about this, but so seeing Zimmerman for the first time, yeah. So when you see doctors like walking around, at least like, you know, modern doctors, when they're wearing their medical smocks, they're like, they're mm-hmm. bleached, they're ironed, they're starched. They're like, you know, they, they make them look like the professionals they are. When you see Zimmerman wearing his, it's like he slept in his. Like, what is that mm. all about? You know, it's like, yeah. oh, I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm so busy that I can't bother to comb my hair. Right. 
well, iron I, my I, clothes, you yeah. know, that kind I mean, of thing. They're definitely making him different from the EMH, uh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, which, by the way, I do like his line, I'm a diagnostic tool, not an engineer. It's like you have to give Zimmerman one of those types of lines. That, that was <laughs> That's pretty a good cool. Line. Yeah. Like that. Uh, time code 4218. Ah. Uh, when, when the swarm aliens beam into the bridge and start shooting and start fighting, I, I am so sorry for that stunned guy on the bridge. Like, they beam in. They fire a weapon, boom, and that guy just hits the ground. But at least, but at least our chief of security goes into action right after that guy has been shot. Oh, sure. Yeah, 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 that was good. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking at this entire fight scene. So follow me around the room, people. Because I'm gonna I'm gonna point out a couple things out of there obvious as Tulak saying that, you know, the only way to go through space is to go through you know Mm -hmm. the alien space. Yeah. They had to go through. Yeah. All right. So let me get this right. There's a hive mind yeah. of alien drone ships mm-hmm. that have attacked Voyager, mm-hmm. and they've managed to negate Voyager's weapons and shields yeah, that's and right. have been able to board the ship because their efforts, okay, this is where uh-huh. the kicker is, uh-huh. are interlinked with a hive mind. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Like I, I've watched a lot of Star Trek. I'm not sure if I've seen this before on Star Trek. Yeah, no, I think we're into some new territory here. Okay. So all right, I'll just see where it goes. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. I, I will say that all that sequence on the bridge, kind of nice to see close quarters action like that on the bridge. Like the, yeah. for filming, that is a relatively small space, and they don't always do action scenes on there. So like all that stuff in basics where they had to do the the physical business with Kala and everybody, that, that was a bit of a challenge to film. This, well done, yeah. gotta say. Yeah. So everyone, like, say, um, when the aliens boarding parties, when they materialize, they all get to fire a phaser on them. Like, so, you know, Janeway, well, let's see, let's, Tuvok fires a phaser after the first mm-hmm. guy gets stunned. And yeah. then Chakotay fires a phaser. Well, that was a really good uh, CQC moment, uh, close yeah. quarters combat CQC. And then, yeah. but all of a sudden, like, Tom sees, like, an alien appear, and then he leaves his chair and tackles somebody. I'm like, but you're wearing a phaser, too. Oh so, no 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 that that is uh, attack pattern Baxter that that's oh, what he was doing yeah right okay mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, okay so timestamp forty two fifty uh, forty two minutes fifty seconds that explosion from one of those small ships rocked like the bridge so hard or at least rocked the actor so hard Kate's bun of steel actually <laughs> it, it, it yes. detached and and. A ponytail cascaded from that, which you can see after the explosion. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought it was, was an intense blow. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, and it could have been like one of those things where she's like well, make up her hair, but no, it's like that's what would have happened if they were actually caught in that explosion. At the end, though, I really do love how I know Balana and Cast were kind of lamenting, like, "Oh, are we going to get our doctor back?" And then the doctor appears as he appeared when they first, you know, uh, initialized his program at the very beginning. You know, very cold, very kind of like calculating and callous. But then he starts humming "O Suave Fanchula," right? And that reminded me a lot of a scene in, say, Star Trek II. I'm sorry, Star Trek III: The Search for Spock, where Spock's very cold and very detached, but all of a sudden he turns around and he said, "Jim." Uh, Your name is Jim. And we, the audience, were like, okay, we're okay now with this. We're, we're all right. Everything's going to be okay. Let me ask you real quick. Did you feel the same way about hearing uh, B4 start to hum Blue Skies in Nemesis? I'll answer that <laughs> when we get to that. 
The great thing about the swarm is that if one of them jumps off a cliff, they all jump off. I think I've heard that somewhere before. Hey, we'll get right back to the swarm, but first a word from this week's sponsor, Star Trek Wines. You know, Norman, as of the day that this episode of Mission Log drops, Star Trek Picard has just started. And that means that if you're kicking back, I know, it's very exciting, the final season of Picard. And maybe you want to enjoy a uh, sophisticated adult beverage while you're watching that. And I would recommend, oh, maybe sharing a bottle of Chateau Picard with a friend. I mean, I think that's the only way to do it. And in, in order to celebrate what's happening with this landmark series and uh, – I mean, I don't want to say final final because it's never really final sure, final you never, Star Trek. Yeah, you never, you right, never know. Right. But uh, Star Trek Picard has been something that has uh, – it, it's being anticipated especially this season with many of the Next Generation fans and the way that it's marketed right now as being like the season for Star Trek Picard. Mm-hmm. But in order to do it properly, in order to do and celebrate how you want to celebrate – there's no better way to do it than get yourself an actual, authentic, prop-quality, screen-quality version of Chateau Picard from StarTrekWines.com. Yeah. And, you know, we've talked about how great those bottles are and how authentic they are. And I literally just you see those things on set. But one thing that doesn't get a lot of attention, I think not enough attention, is the quality of the wine. Okay, so it's not just like they came up with a cool label and then found a winery somewhere and said, well, it's red, put it in the bottle. No, 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 no. They went to the actual Chateau Picard. <laughs> so they would, there is the real Chateau Picard in Bordeaux. And they partnered with that company to have their wine put into these bottles. So you're talking about a high quality wine. The breakdown is that it's an 85% Cabernet Sauvignon, 15% Merlot. It, it is designed to be, well, uh, obviously very flavorful, but also a very versatile wine with a, a clean tasting style, a bright, fresh, and clean. These are the, the words that come to mind when you're talking about this wine. But it is the real deal. It is mm-hmm. actual Chateau Picard put into this very special edition bottle by Star Trek Wines. So as you get prepared for the premiere and for the finale of Picard, I think there's no better way to do it than with a bottle of Chateau Picard. And remember that if you go to the Star Trek Wines website and you look at that very cool medallion with the United Federation of Planets logo on it and you add that to your cart, if you type in Roddenberry at checkout, the price on the medallion just disappears it turns to zero and we do thank them for that exclusive offer to our listeners so visit startrekwines.com today for limited edition chateau picard risen varietals and many more use our special code roddenberry at startrekwines.com for an exclusive united federation of planets medallion All right, Norman, I'm not sure exactly where we should start on this one because we'd have a very distinct A plot and a B plot here. Mm -hmm. And I I feel like I'm actually going to defer to you because I think that this episode, given the title being The Swarm, we are led to believe that the A plot is what's happening with the the swarming aliens. Mm -hmm. But I would argue that the A plot is actually what's happening with the EMH. I think that's where our hearts are. I think that's where the most interesting stuff is happening in the episode. So I feel like I, I want to come to those notes second and, mm-hmm. and sort of start with the swarming aliens. And I know that you've got a note about that. 
to me, this is a lot of tech the tech that is given very little honest concern by our senior staff. I mean, Tuvok is the one voice, <laughs> the one person in the room who says on multiple occasions, this is not a great idea. Why are we doing this? <laughs> this is not smart. We're not supposed to be here. Right. And he is dismissed over and over and over again. Well, I mean, it's uh, dismissed is an interesting word because, you know, let's, let's take a look at the scene. in it's Starfleet for Get Out. That is Starfleet. <laughs> it is Starfleet for I'm Captain. Yeah. In the briefing room. You know, there is this scene. Tuvok says, would it affect your decision if I pointed out that encroaching on the territory of an alien species is prohibited by Starfleet regulations? Janeway says, no, it wouldn't. Mm -hmm. Tuvok says, Captain, you have managed to surprise me. And then Janeway says, we're a long way from Starfleet, Lieutenant. I'm not about to waste 15 months because we've run into a bunch of bullies. My question is, mm -hmm. are they bullies or are they just protecting their territory? Yeah, I mean, we've already come from a part of the Delta Quadrant where the Kazon, who are obsessed with territory uh, to a, a comical degree, <laughs> because there doesn't seem to be any real goal and there. And their territory moves from map to map to map, as well, according to them. Right? Exactly. It's, yeah. it's, it was mine now. I, I'm here, so it was mine now. We've just come from that where there are these multiple factions of Kazon, and they all make these claims to territory. And everybody on Voyager knows, okay, the best thing to do is just get out, don't engage with them, we need to move on. And they keep screwing that up time after time after time. And here we we got this warning from Neelix early on saying, if they are who I think they are, they are fearsome, we do not want to be... We don't want to engage with them at all, we, we don't want any contact with them, we need to get out. And... I guess the question is, is 15 months extra, a year and a half, not quite a year and a half, on top of a potential 70-year journey, is that worth the risk? Because this species of swarming aliens will absolutely do everything they can to kill whatever crosses into their territory. That's like the, the equation. It's either let's take the risk and cross this space in the best way possible and hopefully, like, try not to be caught, like, uh, breaking their sovereign space or, you know, do what the regulations say. So, in other words, would Janeway have respected their space and not violated their territorial borders if her needs to get her crew back on this 70-year, you know, journey back home part of the equation? Hmm. Because hmm. if, in fact, that... She is uh, upholding the Starfleet regulations, as you know. She has said time and again during the course of these last two seasons. Then, why not at least try to, I don't know, try and find a diplomatic solution to this? The only time that, I, at least in the episode that I remember and that I've noted down, the only time that she tried any type of diplomatic solution to this was when that small craft detached itself from the Mislin craft and said, you know, too little, too late. Sorry, you should have listened to us. And she's like, hold on a second. Wait a second. She didn't do anything to say, like, we're sorry. Mm -hmm. We're in the wrong. This isn't what we're supposed to do. This isn't who we are, right? Because the only time they ever had any communication before that was Tom and Bellana encroaching their space through the shuttle pod. And then they were, you know, they were attacked. But all yeah. of these were misunderstandings 
you know, and we've seen this, you know, happen all the time in Star Trek where a misunderstanding turns into a revelation. Let's go all the way back to Arena in the original series, mm-hmm. right? Kirk was hell-bent on destroying the Gorn until the Metrons interceded on both of their behalfs. And like I say, look, either you're going to find a diplomatic way of trying to solve your barbarism and trying to kill each other, or else you're going to annihilate each other over time. You know, mm-hmm. you two as a species, the United Federation of Planets and the Gorn, you know, hegemony. And then Kirk, right before he murders the Gorn, said, no, I won't kill him because we may have been wrong. Right. Right? Right. Yeah. And this is where I wanted Janeway to find that kind of revelation. It's like, wait a second. We may have been wrong. Yeah, I see exactly. And, that, and that's what is so strange about these moments is that it's like this universal decision. Like, well, we're going to go through because that's just who we are and that's our prerogative. We're going to do it. Totally dismissing what Tuvok has to say about it. And did the lesson actually get learned in the end? I'm not convinced that that it was. It was just right. like, oh, we're, we're just going to go because we can. It's space. It's big. We're, we're not going to heed any warnings. And these aliens, as much as the Kazon have a right to their, you know, quote, territory, end quote, these, these aliens might feel exactly the same way. So the interesting thing about what um, was happening in the Delta Quadrant, I think that – more often than not, you see a Janeway, you know, or a Chakotay or any of the officers, they still believe that Starfleet rules apply in a non, in a quadrant of space where Starfleet has no authority or any kind of influence. You know, maybe in the Alpha Quadrant, yeah. you can get away with that. Even maybe in the Beta Quadrant, you can get away with that, but not in the Delta Quadrant. You know, a quadrant of unknown space that has no, that that, that Federation has no jurisdiction over at all. Yeah. So, it's not like you can play fast and loose with the rules where, the Star- where Starfleet can bail you out if you make a mistake. This is literally life or death. Yeah. Right. So it was really yeah. that like the best, you know, the best decision that you're going to make, you know, for your crew. Like, yeah, you know what? Damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. <laughs> right. Yeah. Does that, that work? Seems a, seems a bit foolhardy and especially to not seriously consider the alternatives. That, that's what was so strange about it. All right, well, let's move on a bit and talk about the EMH, who I do think is our A-plot here. But again, hey, you you guys can disagree with me. That's fine. I I made light of it in the last segment, and really I'm still kind of making light of it. But (laughs) there's this interesting idea at play, which we have poked fun of and we have commented about in the past. Not not poke fun because it's a dumb idea, but just because it, it is a fascinating idea that doesn't really get explored. And that is the idea of the EMH being a computer program put into all these situations where he is interacting with another computer program. So whether it was the doctor on the holodeck uh, in a, you know, Viking fantasy <laughs> or, uh, you know, or now in a holodeck simulation of Jupiter Station to have Dr. Zimmerman as a diagnostic tool um, or a singing opera. These are all computer programs 
being run on a computer, on Voyager's computer, that are interacting with each other. Mm-hmm. They're talking to each other. And sometimes they're trying to figure out in real time what's going on with the other. Other times they are, like I said, in the uh, in the opera simulation, literally critiquing each other, <laughs> like getting angry at each other. And I, it's... Um, It's sort of the equivalent now of taking a couple of AI chatbots and just letting them talk to each other. And, of course, there was that experiment, uh, oh, just, you know, a few years ago. I think it was Google that had an AI bot that they sort of let loose on Twitter. And it went very bad very quickly, so they pulled the plug on it. Maybe it was Microsoft, but somebody did this. It went very wrong just very quickly. It turned awful, so they yanked the plug on it. And... I, I know that we're probably not going to get there with Voyager, but I, this is always in the back of my head whenever the EMH is interacting with another aspect of the same system that is running it. However, however, it is an interesting sideline here, not necessarily an intended commentary, that you still sometimes need a human or half human, half Klingon, somebody, a biological entity – to interact as almost like a mediator, to mm-hmm. to get the programs on course, saying, no, you need to do this. No, you actually need to do this other thing. Like, that's that's what's so interesting to me in those moments. You know, we've, we've said this time and again about the EMH, and I think that what, I think what's problematic about kind of like a story like this is we don't know what the parameters are of like what he can and can't do. And I think mm-hmm. that there's this... Um, if, if you take this and, and you isolate his story without the foreknowledge of, say, the Matrix or, you know, uh, other science fiction tropes that allow people to be able to program instantly, like, information into their brains, then, yes, maybe the AMH, like, becomes a little bit more complex, you know, as a character that can't access this information like, immediately. But we know that uh, in real time that, you know, these that AI algorithms can produce vast amounts of like reactions to resources and information than, than we can even comprehend. And now extrapolate that to technology that's going to exist in the 24th century, you know, with doctors and women programming the entire body of like medical knowledge into this being, mm-hmm. this holographic being. And all of a sudden you're like, well, why wouldn't he be able to say no every opera at the speed of downloading or every emotion at the speed of understanding or every, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. all the capacity that, that there is for human existence. But maybe that's the whole reason of this episode is that we see that that capacity wasn't built into his programming to begin with. He is a mm. functionary, mm-hmm. right, to begin with. He has a 1,500-hour maximum uptime for – not only um, not only understanding data, but hosting data, and then and and then also uh, using that data to uh, maybe uh, uh, as a database for like you know sick patients or patients that he had to treat, you know, as yeah. an emergency you know countermeasure. So what happens when you know you, you when someone's cup runneth over, right? <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, and that's an interesting yeah. study. And what's happening here is like he is. For all intents and purposes, he's at his maximum capacity to grow. And yeah. without without that being programmed, without the foreknowledge of programming that into his uh, matrix matrices, mm-hmm. uh, that what does that mean? Like, does that mean that that's it? That's you know, you just 
erase everything and, and nuke it to the studs and then just start from the very beginning. What does that do to the people that interact with him? You know, it's kind of like yeah. um, at the end of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, you know, McMurphy gets mm-hmm. lobotomized, mm-hmm. right? Yep. You know, and he ends up turning into a more civil, uh, more uh, malleable citizen that can benefit society. You know, he everything that was McMurphy, you know, yeah. is gone, except yeah. you can teach him how to dig a, you know, dig a hole, dig a ditch, you know, do manual labor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Does he serve society from being reset that way? Or does he, you know, according to his friends, everything about him that was special is gone, right? Yeah. Everything that, in, you know, that, that inspired them, like the chief, to be able to pull that, you know, water fountain out of the, you know, the floor of the, of the building to, to, you know, escape was almost gone, right? So that's, that's the EMH in this. If you, if you erase who he is from the existence of Voyager, what does it do to the crew, the people that actually have learned to depend on him yeah. and love him, right? But, but that equation is mightily complicated by the idea that the EMH is a tool there that, serves literally in the capacity of, you know, the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few or the one. Voyager ceases to exist if that crew all dies from, oh, I don't know, you know, some alien virus that only somebody like the EMH can cure. You know, yeah. so if he can't serve in his role as the EMH, as the the doctor, because there is no chief medical officer, then Voyager's mission, Voyager's purpose ends because that crew could potentially be gone. So I, I, I like how this episode complicates the idea by saying, okay, at a certain point, you know, we we do come up with another resolution here, but at a certain point, the episode is asking, is it better to wipe the slate clean to just have the tool back in place that we had two years ago because it can serve, he can serve to take care of us medically, but we're going to lose the the personality part of it that has grown over time. You know, now here's the other thing. You're starting essentially with the same original computer program. Could you then prepare for the idea that he'll be running nonstop the way he was before? And build that into the program, build that into, well, you know, we keep joking about the giant backup drive that they need to tow behind them. <laughs> so could could you actually build that in if you had to reboot them and let that personality regrow, let that personality develop? And, you know, maybe that would be an okay conclusion. Because remember, the doctor actually asked for it. Right. The doctor said it very much in a Tuvix moment early mm-hmm. on, said, okay, well, here's what you have to do. Right. You have to reset me, mm-hmm. you know, the, dispassionately. And it was Kess who stepped up and said, no, 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 because then we'll lose who you are, not just what you are. Yeah. I mean, I think the entire thing, this, in, in this study in Extremis with like all these different characters of Voyager, because of what happens to them in the Delta Quadrant, doesn't necessarily mean that that's what have happened to them in the Alpha Quadrant serving in the capacity that they're supposed to, right? You know, sure. like, yeah. Janeway wouldn't have had to make these decisions to go through, you know, and, and navigate like enemy territories and her crew, you know, they would have followed suit. And the EMH, you know, himself would never have had to actually be as involved or be online as long as he has been because that's not his purpose. That wouldn't have happened 
in the Alpha Quadrant. Like the yeah, loss no. of like you know the medical crew and all the the basically the primary crew that we lost in Caretaker wouldn't have happened in the Alpha Quadrant nine out of ten times. You know, obviously yeah. there's there's you know the possibility that it could have, yeah. but you know the Doctor in and of itself, he wasn't supposed to be this. You know, yeah. But how do you? How do you weigh? And this is going, you know, all the way back to all of these arguments about the doctor and going to the clown and the thaw and going to all of these, you know, entities that you know have the right to life. How do you say that resetting him, turning him into what his original programming was, is as valid as letting his life continue or finding a way to preserve that life? Because that is important to more people than just being a series of ones and zeros. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to come to one other thing, though, that is, um, I, I think, really important to the heart of this episode. And I, and I don't have, a, like, really a, a moral or ethical question about it as we're asking, you know, what should or could have been done with the EMH as they were making those decisions. And that's just watching his decline, watching his cognitive decline as a parallel to dementia. Whether it's in you know Alzheimer's or Alzheimer's-like uh, situation, that that is the metaphor at play here. I thought it was handled incredibly well in this episode. It, it was handled with a lot of heart and uh, a lot of dignity for him. And not only do we explore those ideas here about aging and cognitive decline, but we stay in this area where we've been before, which is, you know, asking ourselves about the EMH's personhood and how we treat him as an individual. And that all comes down to Kess. Remember, Kess is the one who keeps fighting back about him. Um, and she's the one who says, if you lose those memories, you won't be the same person. Very much to your point, Norman, uh, doing that parallel to One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. So, I, I, I sort of ask myself, you know, does he have a say in what he wants to do, a la that scene from Tuvix? Because uh, as a logical computer program, the EMH is saying that he wants to be rebooted. And does he actually feel one way or the other about it? Is that question, again, just academic? <laughs> because really what's important here is that all these other people are reacting and bringing him into their lives as part of the crew, not just as a machine, not just a set of ones and zeros, as you say. But I, I think one of the standout players in this episode, Kess, Jennifer Lean, she she is put in this role as the child who is taking care of a parent who is suffering from dementia. And it's absolutely lovely. It truly gets at the heart of what's on display here. Yeah. I, I know that um, it's unfortunate that, that Jennifer Leon doesn't get the recognition it's, as far as I've seen. Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. hope this is, I'm wrong about this, you know, in circles of Voyager fandom mm -hmm. that her contribution to let's say episodes like this, paramount to the success of an episode because she is the advocate for somebody who has been compromised you know she is like you said like she is could mm -hmm. she could be the the daughter or the wife or the stepdaughter or anyone in the relationship of somebody who's suffering from alzheimer's you know or from memory loss or from a debilitating illness that affects their memory and their agency and she's the only one uh, and and Bologna to some extent, you know, but she's more on kind of like, say, the technical side of it. But Kess is the only one really more from like kind of the moral and emotional side that's saying like, if you remove the agency and morality and dignity of this person, then what is left of this person? 
right? You know, this person is my friend. You know, this person is someone who means something to me. I don't think that I would be able to endure this journey if it weren't for the growth and relationship that I've had with this person, you know, the doctor. So her being able to speak up on his behalf, especially in that moment where she knows when he started flickering out of existence, where she knows that that was the moment where, you know, the, the critical moment of he's, he has no agency over himself, where she's the only voice of reason to see a Janeway or to anyone in the high command saying like, look, if you want your doctor to survive, if you want your friend to survive, if you want somebody to be able to get you through the situations in the future, you have to start paying attention to his welfare, you know, and find yeah. better solutions than just, okay, we're just going to lobotomize him to get him back to square one so he can, you know, you know he can service the crew again by the function of his abilities and his programming. But he's more than that, right? And it's wonderful to see someone of, of her caliber advocate for him in that way. The real message of this episode, back up your data often, please. Just back up your data. This has been a public service announcement from your friendly neighborhood computer. Well, as we do in Mission Log, we have come to the end of our episode and we have swarmed around a mm. lot of different issues. Mm -hmm. Some difficult, some fairly straightforward. And uh, we come to the analysis of the episode. Uh, does the episode hold up? And then eventually we will get to the uh, episode morals and meanings and messages if there are any that have been mined uh, as we always do with the analysis of our show there are a lot of things that we've talked about here and let's try and see if we can crystallize some of these things mm -hmm. with the swarm john yes. so first and foremost how did you feel about this episode and does this episode hold up for you I, as a story i think it's okay i i mentioned before so we have these distinct a and B plots, you can decide what those are for you. I'm, I'm still going to say the A plot is about the EMH. Um, <laughs> and, and at the end of the day, they're both about solving a technical problem. Um, the A plot, the EMH is about rebooting him with a slightly different graft of a personality on him. Does it even merit, again, asking if Voyager's computer systems has backups, <laughs> especially for something as critical and unique as the EMH? I, maybe not. It's a discussion for another time. And if we go to the B-plot about the swarming aliens, it's about how do we get past them, and there's a tech solution to that problem. Speaking of technology... In this episode as a whole, the split screen stuff, the compositing is great with Picardo. And, you know, I think Voyager has already proven itself to be very adept with that technique. I really like the creative use of CG to do something in this show that you could not do before that came along to show thousands of swarming ships like that. That was cool. So it's a good episode in terms of execution and production. But is there enough meat on the bone here? I'm not really sure. So why I don't think it's a great episode, it does do something well that I think other episodes have failed to do. It left one of our characters with this profound change that maybe, I'm crossing my fingers here, maybe it will have some repercussion or some follow-up. Maybe by the next episode, perhaps? I might be in for some disappointment here. But, I mean, look, we've killed Harry Kim. We merged and then split Tuvok and Neelix. We've had Janeway and Chakotay share intimate moments, and then nothing. 
And at the end of this episode, the EMH has been wiped clean, except for this glimmer of his personality reemerging. So I wonder, like, that that was actually the longest we've been able to sit with a character after a profound change. So will it come up again? Or is it just back to himself in the next episode? I, I, I don't know, but it, that moment actually felt a little more... A little more earned, a little more realistic than even just the split of Tuvok and Neelix. Really, we just got the reaction out of Janeway after that. Nothing out of those two again. So I I might be setting myself for, for disappointment there. But I hope that that moment took root. I hope that it, that it had some depth. Also, look, I, I will sound like a broken record here, but Bob Picardo... MVP in so many ways. He is so good in this episode. Yep. Those differences between the EMH and Dr. Zimmerman, just great to watch him embody these two different characters who are very much the same guy, but not. So it's good. It's not great. I, I think yeah. this is another one of those where sort of like a plot point will stand out to me a few years from now. If you say, Hey, remember that time that the EMH was losing his mind and almost had to be rebooted. Sure. But I wouldn't be able to tell you where that came along or what episode it was in. So that mm-hmm. that's kind of how this sits for me. Uh, what about you? Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm going to use that phrase to be completely honest or to be honest with you. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Which we always are, but right? yeah. 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 Kind of like first things first, this uh, this episode suffers from an A story that is so forgettable. Mm-hmm. I think like the only reason why people actually remember the A story is because the title is The Swarm. And you're like, oh, yeah, it's about that swarm <laughs> in the episode. <laughs> right. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's kind of like it's a conditioning that we all have with pop culture where, you know, your expectations are set up by the title, you know. Yeah. And, and in this case... It's a weird thing. I love how you phrase, like, is it the A story? Is it the B story? The A, Even if it's the A story, the A story was terrible. Yeah. It was just, it was so unbelievably forgettable that it's just run-of-the-mill alien invasion, alien fight, alien victory, you know, or, or, or victory over the aliens of the week kind of thing where you're like, okay, let's get past that and and look at, like, what's really happening in this episode, and that's the B story. Or maybe it is the A story, because isn't the mm. A story supposed to act, be the story that actually means something? Uh, well, yeah, you know? right. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's the doctor story. And that was done with such incredible uh, just grace and presence and writing and quality Mm -hmm. that you can't help but, you know, remember. I mean, for me, remember this episode that this is the episode where Bob Picardo really just kind of took the doctor to a completely different level. And Jennifer Ann's Kess was another performance, you know, in her resume of why Kess, I think, is one of the most unsung and underrated characters in Voyager because of what she brings to not only like rounding out the doctor's character, but making an effort to showing a very empathetic and sympathetic character for other, you know, crew members on the ship. Yeah. And I think that's important where somebody is like, I'm not going to be, you know, I'm not going to like stand tall and in a leadership position, but some of the most important people on a team are people that give you that emotional support, you know, understanding like why you need the things that you need and how you function the way that you function because of teamwork, because of respect, because of, you know, personal, you know, self-worth. And that's what she brings and supports every character with who she interacts with in this show. 
And I think that that's, I, I think that's worth note. You know, I think that's mm-hmm. worth talking about. This episode is really worth talking about regarding the, the doctor's storyline, the, you know, the extension of who he is as a character. Um, and, you know, and, and Balan is in there too. So she kind of like adds in, in, uh, to the roundness of all of these, um, all these dynamics that are going on. It's kind of funny that the doctor kind of laments the fact that, you know, the women in his opera or the women that have like surrounded himself, like in like the, the, the further study of like, like his cultural growth, he laments those characters. But in fact, the mm-hmm. women that are like most responsible for who he is in his life, yeah. you know, are the ones that at the end really shine Balana and Kess. Yeah. Because they're the ones that yeah. bring him back. They're the ones that are going to develop him and kind of like nurture him to be who he is or return him to who he is uh, after this episode. There's a lot of earned moments that happened between Kess and the Doctor that go all the way back to Caretaker in subsequent episodes where you and I have both advocated like in our reviews that Kess and the Doctor is one of the most important storylines in Voyager and definitely mm-hmm. one that's worth noting. And this is, episode is no exception. If it weren't for that story... I'm not sure like where I would be recommending this episode because the A story is so forgettable, but because of Bob's performance and Jennifer's performance and to some degree Roxana's performance, mm-hmm. I think that that's worth noting and I think that that's worth recommending this episode for. Okay, fair. Yeah. When we turn to morals, meanings, messages, I mean, I, I really have to kind of discount the swarming aliens plot just because you and it's I terrible. had... Yeah, well... <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was just it, it was a tech the tech solution to a yeah. tech the tech problem, and that, that's really it. And you can certainly argue that the problem is one of their own creation. We shouldn't yeah. go in there. All right, we're going to go in there, and then we'll fight our way out. <laughs> you know, by just trying to be more clever than the things that we know are going to attack us. So it reminds me of that. Um, you're a fan of Saturday Night Live, and it reminds of course, me of that yeah. episode with uh, it was um, like the New Kids Crew or something like that, and uh, they. They go in and they like poke a bear, and they wonder what's going to happen if they poke a bear. <laughs> They're like, "Well, what's going to happen if we poke that bear? Well, the bear's going to attack us, yo! Like, of course it's going to well, attack you because you poked a freaking sleeping bear, right? 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 That's the logic of it. It's the it, it's the insane logic of truth. Yeah, that that's going to yeah, happen exactly. Yeah. So I, I can't really give too much credence to that. But when I look at the plot about the EMH and his journey, you used a word a moment ago in your uh, wrap up, and that was grace, and uh, that is present in the writing, and I think in the characters and the interactions there is a grace and a gentleness and a real compassion that's shown in in everybody. It, it's not just the doctor and Kess. It's also Balana burning the midnight oil to work for the importance of the EMH and, and also to solve a problem, you know. But she's doing double duty here. She's got to worry about the alien invasion that is Janeway's doing. <laughs> and and then she's also got to worry about what's happening with the EMH. There is also a grace to how Janeway handles the situation with the EMH. There, uh, there are all these moments that humanize this character, which is already interesting because that character is not human. He is manufactured intelligence. But it is doubly so because he's having a problem and he needs their help. And there is this line 
A couple of lines that I pulled out that I, I thought were so thoughtful in here where uh, Zimmer. Dr. Zimmerman is hollow Zimmerman. There are limitations to my programming. I can't just decide to exceed them. And Bellana responds, the doctor did, so why can't you? It, it's so on the nose. It's so obvious. And yet that is the perfect comeback to that situation. It's the perfect way to just boil down the situation to its bare essence. And I, I so appreciated that little interaction between those two. It shows that the doctor is more than the sum of his parts and the sum of his programming. And if we already treat him like a member of the crew, like somebody who has afforded a kind of dignity, then we can do that with this other holo character as well we can do that with zimmerman as well we can encourage him we can actually get him to be more than the sum of his programming and that's kind of cool to see it's cool to see this crew coalesce and pull together to solve not just the external tech the tech escape the alien problem but actually to resolve a problem internally with somebody who is in need that's the there's a beauty to that especially personified in Cass, but seen throughout those interactions in this show. You know, I found more of a more of a meaning in this episode than, say, a moral message. That's why I like having the triple M's, you know? Yeah, yeah. We've got to give ourselves that leeway. <laughs> a little bit of flexibility, yeah. 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 So, um, you know, the big question that I found in this episode, in, in, in that message, what is life and death to a computer program, hmm. right? What is life and death to a non-biological entity, what is life and death to some thing, I emphasize thing, mm -hmm. that technically can never die? Like, is life something that can be appreciated by something that doesn't appreciate that which makes life worth living? Like passion and love and emotion and a connection to other living things or beings, you know? Mm -hmm. In the scene where Kess pleads to find another way to save the doctor, she says, we can't treat the doctor like he's a computer anymore. Mm -hmm. He's come too far for that. Doctor, please think about this. You'd be losing so much. Relationships you've developed, our friendship, your sense of being a true member of this crew, all of that would be gone, right? So that's what's at stake here with the doctor. By the very nature of what he was doing at the beginning, right? So how do you can't just be a computer and sing opera, or maybe that's the reason why Pentangeli, the, the diva says, I'm singing with a computer, yeah, <laughs> right. But right. you know what? This is such an interesting question that can't be answered. And that is, at what point did he become more than that? Because I, I love mm -hmm. that you pulled that line. We can't treat him like a computer anymore. He's come too right. far for that. Mm -hmm. When did that happen? Did it happen five minutes after they activated the EMH? Did it happen the first week? Did it happen a year later? Did it happen after Kess told Janeway, no, 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 you have to treat him like more than a tool? Mm -hmm. There's no answer to that, and the answer is going to be different for, for anybody who interacts with him. So I, I love the impossible situation presented by that. And I'm going to answer your question with a question. Okay. When did Tuvix stop becoming this experiment anymore, uh -huh. this mistake anymore, uh -huh. right? Yep. So there's a, there's a certain similar aspect to that. You know, what's at stake here, though, in, in this story is like, this is where, like, the doctor, 
who he is and what he is doing at the beginning, at the end of this episode, prove to us that he's not just some thing that we reference, right? You know, he is a him now. You know, he is a person. He's not an it. And there's a moment in that scene that I love when, say, Kess and everyone else involved, they're discussing the Doctor's fate. This is why I love watching Voyager as a series. Because you see moments like this, you, they ask the larger questions or they beg us as the audience to contemplate these larger questions. And if I had to summarize, say, Kess and the doctor's relationship and her defense of yeah. his life you know, and his recognition of how he's changing through his life and this growing relationship, I'm going to – and as I usually do – I'm going to quote one of my favorite songs by Rush. Yes. <laughs> right? From the song Prime Mover. From the point of conception to the moment of truth, at the point of surrender to the burden of proof, from the point of ignition to the final drive, the point of the journey is not to arrive. Anything can happen. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you'd like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, False Prophets. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Schabel. Did the entire swarm blow up everywhere, or were these guys air-gapped from the rest of the swarm? I have so many questions. I'm sure we'll learn more the next time they show up. End transmission. This is a Roddenberry Podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.rottenberry.com.